0: Now hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Like, uh, like Britt said, my name is Paul Ramsey. It's an honor to be here with you preaching God's word this morning, especially as we close our sermon series through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Pause. Okay. We're closing our series through the, <laughs> through the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, uh, which has been a wonderful series. Paul writes this letter. This is one of the earliest letters uh, written by the Apostle of Paul to the New Testament church uh, churches that he ministered to. Uh, it was either it or Galatians was the first letter. And so this is a few decades after the ministry of Jesus. We've talked about this several times over the course of this series. And so at this point, everything is new. The truth of God what Christ has done for the church, what Christ has done for us was brand new. They didn't have the whole Bible with them. They would have had just this letter and Paul gives them some specific words of encouragement because this church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, rather, was going through the ringer. They were suffering. Uh, Some were dying. Uh, They had lots of questions for the apostle Paul, but repeatedly, as we've seen time and again, Paul says, concerning this or that thing, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you already have what you need. You have the Lord. You have his word, you have each other. Just keep leaning in and enjoying the grace of God, which is for you in the gospel. And as we finish this series in First Thessalonians, we come to the final section. If you've got your Bibles open to First Thessalonians chapter five, you'll see uh, that the, the final section begins in verse 12. Paul essentially talks in this final section about three relationships relationships with their leaders, verses 12 and 13, and with one another in verses 14 and 15. Those are the first two relationships. This is the passage that Dodge preached last week. Um, today, we finish by looking at the third relationship that Paul wants to close with. It's, a, it's their relationship with God himself. And so this is the passage that we're looking at, and in this passage, we're going to see Paul give a number of rapid-fire exhortations. Uh, Continuing on the kind of rapid-fire style of his communication, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything, don't quench the spirit. He goes. He, he gives these rapid-fire exhortations, but essentially, I think Paul is trying to communicate to them three essential ingredients, three essential things that he doesn't want them to forget about. Three essential things for the church in Thessalonica. Keep these things in mind as I close. Three things that Paul wants them not to forget about. And the first thing is this. First thing is this, it says, Paul, I think is saying, don't forget God's providence. It's the first thing, don't forget God's providence. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. Paul says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul says to them, rejoice, give thanks, pray, do these things at all times in any circumstance, because this is God's will for you. And why does Paul have to remind them of these things? It's because these things are hard. Paul has talked about, like I said a moment ago, Paul has addressed the fact that people are dying, that the Thessalonian church, uh, many of them are suffering. And even in the midst of these realities, Paul says you should give yourselves to rejoicing, to constant prayer, and to thanksgiving. What does Paul want them to remember? What do all of these things point to? they point to a God who is in control of all things, who's given them every reason to rejoice, to trust that He hears their prayers, and to give Him thanks. Even when things are hard, you can trust in God, who has given you all that you need and who is working all things to their intended ends. And this brings us right off the bat to a really important doctrine in the Christian faith. It's the doctrine of God's providence, of God's will. Um, It's worth considering this doctrine for just a moment because I think understanding this is critical to understanding what Paul or how, how these words of Paul are to apply to the lives of these Christians. Chapter three of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the 16th, or excuse me, 17th century confession. It's, it appears exactly the same, This statement in the London Baptist Confession around the same time. It says this, listen to these words. It says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This comes from two of the 17th century confessions from the, that just outline general Christian teaching. And they say, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That means that whatever happens, anything that happens in the world, happens because God has so ordained it. Whatsoever comes to pass happens because God has so ordained it in his most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Now, theologians throughout history have noticed a few different ways in which God's will, this uh, providence, this design uh, is referred to in the Bible. One way of explaining this is the difference between what's known as, stick with me, what's known as the decretive will of God and the preceptive will of God, the the will of God's will of decree and God's will of precepts or commands. Um, God's will of decree is sometimes called God's sovereign efficacious will, that God says it and it happens by necessity. Think of Genesis chapter one, when God said, let there be light. The light had no option but to obey God's decree. God said, let there be light and there was light. That's God's will of decree. God's will of command is found in his law or his commandments, and this is the portion of God's will that, we are, that is left to us to obey or not. An example of this is, of course, do not lie. Do not steal. Do not covet. This is the will of God for his people, and that will can be disobeyed. Think of 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will of command. To tie these two things together, this means that human beings can do things outside of God's will in a sense, but that even this behavior, which is outside of God's will, is part of the larger plane of God in a way that's mysterious in many ways. The reason I'm getting at this is because the question is, why does God allow bad things to happen? If we're to rejoice, are we to rejoice about everything that happens? Some theologians have suggested a third category, that God has a permissive will by which he allows things to happen. That's a conversation for another day. But because it is, the truth is that God has a greater plan for all things than we can conceive of right now, in which all things work together ultimately for our good and for our glory, even the bad things. And so why am I talking about this? For one, Paul talks about God's will explicitly in verse 18 of our passage. He talks about God's will. It's important for us to understand what he's talking about. More than that, the reason I think it's important to consider the will of God in that detail is because a right understanding of his will is essential for applying what Paul's saying, like I said just a moment ago. Is Paul telling us that we're supposed to rejoice in and give thanks for everything that happens to us, even the bad, because it's his will? Let me illustrate it this way. Picture a person who has endured abuse of some form. If someone comes up to me and asks me, was it God's will for me to be abused? I don't have to pause or give any caveats. I can say, no, it's not God's will that you were abused. The person who abused you was not acting out his will. The breaking of his commandments moves God to anger and grief as it does me. Now, there is a sense in which that abuse is a part of God's sovereign plan for all things in a way that I don't fully understand. Nobody does except God. What I do know is that God will bring comfort and healing, that God is near to the brokenhearted, but that there are things going on behind the scenes in the mind of God that are mysterious to us. You must know that God is strong and sovereign enough to turn whatever it is around for good, that he can use even this, that he empathizes with you, that he's near to you, But you do not need to give thanks for this thing, this evil thing that has happened. With this in mind, we can look back at Paul's words in our passage. Talk about a little bit what Paul does and doesn't mean. Let's begin with what Paul doesn't mean. To rejoice always doesn't mean that we are always to be happy. It's important to recognize, to quote one pastor, that joy and happiness are not at our command and cannot be turned on and off like a tap. Paul's not saying go around with smiles on your faces at all times. Remember, Paul's just talked about grieving. In the book of Romans, he says to weep with those who weep. To rejoice always then doesn't mean that there's no room for sadness regarding things that are truly saddening. Elsewhere, Paul says more explicitly, we rejoice in our sufferings. That doesn't mean that we rejoice because of our sufferings. What we rejoice in, is, the fact, is, is, is in how God uses our sufferings. That's from Romans chapter five and he says, suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, which doesn't put us to shame. So suffering is not the thing in which we rejoice, for which we rejoice, I should say. We rejoice in how God uses it. Similarly, to give thanks in all circumstances, as Paul says, doesn't mean that we are to give God thanks for all circumstances, <laughs> right? Thank you, God, for my broken leg. Thank you, God, for letting kids bully me in elementary school. Thank you, God, for the pain that comes with bearing children. Absolutely not. That's not the expectation here. God is not pleased when we suffer. Neither should we be pleased when we suffer. In figuring out uh, what Paul does mean, though, it's helpful to consider how the Bible talks about rejoicing and thanksgiving. For rejoicing, think about the many psalms in this altar that talk about worshiping the Lord. Come let us sing for joy to the Lord, praise the Lord, shout for joy to the Lord, all you people. This is an invitation to worship, to worship God always. And it touches on an important characteristic of worship that it should be marked by joy. It's always appropriate to celebrate what God has done for us in worship in whatever circumstance, even at a funeral. When we are mourning the death of a loved one, it is appropriate to rejoice in the things that God has done and the promises that he has made. It doesn't remove, you know, this, this doesn't contradict or make it inappropriate to engage with sadness and mourning in the very same gathering. Indeed, these things go hand in hand. The pain that you're experiencing doesn't threaten who God is and what he's done. It doesn't remove you from the truths in which you can find real joy. Paul says i've learned the secret to being content in any circumstance from prison and that is being with god knowing god and being with him seeing it this way paul's command here to rejoice always is more an indictment on the gloomy boring church service than on the saddened believer it does mean that whatever sadness you're facing there's always room for rejoicing in the gospel no matter what you're going through remember Don't forget God's providence, that God is using all things. It's similar with thanksgiving. Listen to the first part of Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with goods so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you hear those words? Bless the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. He is forgiver, healer, redeemer. He's the one who puts a crown on your head. Think about what these characteristics of God presuppose. They presuppose that there will be times in our life when we are sick in need of healing, where we are in a pit in need of deliverance, where we are in pain in need of relief, where we are fading away and in need of our youth to be renewed, where we are not satisfied and we need him to be our satisfier. In the midst of any circumstance, Paul tells us to lean in together and remember the glorious grace of God for us in a way that eclipses whatever plight we're in the middle of. And right in the middle of his commands to rejoice and give thanks, he tells them to pray without ceasing. Now what this probably doesn't mean is to, it's not about blabbering on nonstop. Let me read you a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. This is Luke 18, starting in verse 1. "'Jesus told them a parable to the effect "'that they ought always to pray and not lose heart.'" Sound familiar? They ought always to pray and not lose heart. "'Jesus said, "'In a certain city there was a judge "'who neither feared God nor respected man, "'and there was a widow in that city "'who kept coming to him and saying, "'Give me justice against my adversary.'" When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So here Jesus tells them a parable. Luke tells us it's so that they would always pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus says, did you hear the unrighteous judge assent to her request for justice? How much more will God give justice to his people? Don't get tired of praying, even if your prayers aren't answered right away. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Do you hear what he says at the end? He said, he ended that parable his explanation of that parable with, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? If you think about it, what is at the root of prayer? At the root of prayer is faith. Ultimately, this exhortation about prayer from Jesus, and then here from Paul is about faith. Why is it important to pray without ceasing? because we are too prone to consider only ourselves as we go through our daily lives and what we are able to do. If we can't do it, we conclude it can't be done. If I'm stuck in this funk and I can't get out of it, there's nothing to be done about it. We are too prone to rely on ourselves only. We forget to acknowledge that it is not ultimately us who are in charge of things, but God. That with God, all things are possible. In prayer, we engage in the reality that God is in control and He's listening. When things are going wrong in the restaurant, He is the manager who can come over and make things right. Even if God is not answering affirmatively, we continue to pray, trusting that God is good, that He is in the process of bringing all things to their intended ends, that it will all come around for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, as Paul says in Romans chapter eight. And he is shaping me right now, right where he has me, even before anything changes. This is one of the tools God uses to shape our hearts. Whether the answer is yes or no to our prayers, God is always working within them. This is the first point that Paul is making. Don't forget God's providence. No matter what's happening, on account of God's good providence, you can rejoice in the midst of your real life. You can always pray like this widow in needy situations having faith that justice is coming. You can give thanks in the midst of any situation, trusting that God can and will use it for your good and for his glory. Why does Paul command these things? Back to the question I asked at the beginning, why does he say these things? It's because they're hard. We don't always feel like rejoicing, like praying or like giving thanks, and yet we are told to do so, why? Paul tells us, because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. No matter how you feel, Paul says, this is what it looks like to walk in God's will. Rejoice in Him, pray to Him, give Him thanks. This is what shapes you. Because here's the thing these are practices, not feelings. These are things to be done. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Do you feel stuck? Do these things. What must I do to get out out of this funk that I'm in? Do these things. Sing loudly at church. Pray earnestly. Even if your prayer is, Lord, help me want to pray right now. Give God thanks. Sit down and make a list if you have to. If nothing comes freely, just stare at a blank piece of paper until you start jotting down things that you have to be thankful for. This isn't a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Your affections need not be in line with your will at all times. The older I've gotten, the more I've realized that often my affections, my feelings, and my will are not in the same place. Doing God's will, though, is not faking it. David, King David in the Psalms, is not faking it when he's in the midst of despair in a terrible situation, and he says, yet I will give thanks to you, O Lord. He's not faking it. He's walking in God's will. My daughters are experiencing feelings and struggling with them in many ways in which it's neat to watch as they grow. And it's just perfectly appropriate. They're seven and five. And one of the things that they're struggling with now that they're learning, I should say, is fairness, right? It feels unfair oftentimes that I ask them to share, hi, Tallulah, that I ask them to share Uh, one of them, to share her toy with her sister more than it happens to appear the other way around. Why do I have to share this more with her? That's not fair. It feels unfair, but that's not true in an ultimate sense. There's a bigger picture that I'm aware of in which I'm asking her to share for her own good because I know what true joy looks like, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But that's not what she sees right now. She sees her dad being unfair and a toy that she doesn't want to give away dad, you don't get it. It's unfair. And this is similar with God and us. Paul says, rejoice, give thanks. But God, you don't get it. Did you hear what he said? Did you see what just happened to me? No, the truth is that you don't get it. Please don't be a 30-year-old or 40-year-old or 60-year-old who hasn't learned that your will and your affections don't always line up that your emotions don't always align with ultimate reality. This is the ultimate reality, that God is good, that he's with you and for you, that you have much to rejoice in and give thanks about. You have every reason to pray with confidence. Don't forget this, don't forget God's providence. This is the first thing. The second is this. If the first was don't forget God's providence, the second is don't forget God's presence don't lose sight of God's presence. It's one thing to remember God and to rejoice in in, in Him for all that He's done and all that He's promised. It's another thing to avail yourself of His real presence with you right now. It's one thing to think that God is over everything. It's another thing to think and to enjoy Him in His nearness. And how is He present with us? By the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit, Paul says. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul wants us to remember that God is over everything, but he also wants us to remember that God is here right now, speaking to us. The focus here appears to be on prophecy. Don't quench the spirit, Paul says. And what does he say they're doing to quench the spirit? They're despising prophecies. And Paul's word to them is don't. Now let's consider prophecy together for just a moment uh, to understand what Paul's talking about. Prophecy can be understood as knowing and speaking God's mind and will. Prophecy is knowing and speaking God's mind and will. In the days of the Old Testament, before the arrival of Jesus, only a select few of God's people were prophets. Many of the books of the Old Testament were written by these prophets. Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and so forth. There was an expectation, however even from the early days of Moses, that there was coming a day when all of God's people would, be, would prophesy. Moses said back in Numbers 11, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. The later prophets say the same thing in several different places. And when we come to the New Testament, After Jesus' death and resurrection, we see that at an event known as Pentecost, this indeed happened, that the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the Apostle Peter at this event of Pentecost, you may be familiar with the story, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and explains what happens, and he quotes one of the later prophets, the prophet Joel. He says, Peter quotes this, saying, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrived. Peter says, this is the day that the prophet Joel was talking about. On account of this, apparently, all of God's people may therefore prophesy. Beyond this, there were particular people in the New Testament who are referred to as filling the office of prophet or prophetess. You have Agabus, Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, one of the other Judases, Silas, Philip's four daughters, and so so forth. This was a vital ministry, the, the office of prophet, especially in the days before the New Testament was complete. Now, today, there are those who believe that God is once again giving prophecy to his church in the same way as he did in the beginning. And this is somewhat controversial. You may be aware of this controversy. But with that said, there are a few things on which all biblical Christians can, and I think should agree. All biblical Christians, for, for, for example, hold to two specific truths about the scriptures contained for us in the Bible. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture and we believe in the supremacy or the authority of Scripture. In holding to the sufficiency of Scripture, we believe that we have the complete canon of Scripture, that there are no apostles alive today who are apostles in the sense that Peter, John, and Paul were apostles, authoring Scripture. There are no prophets today in the sense of the prophets of old, like Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. This means that there's no one who is giving prophecies like the apostle John, for example, who calls the book of Revelation a prophecy. Thus, no one, this is the sufficiency of Scripture, no one has a right to change, add, or subtract from Scripture. The foundation has been laid by the apostles and prophets once and for all. The Bible that we have is sufficient. There's nothing that we need to know about the plan of God that's not in Scripture. And there's nothing that's in Scripture that is irrelevant for today. We can neither add to it nor subtract from it. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. We have all that we need in the written Word of God. In holding to the authority of Scripture or the supremacy of Scripture, we see the words of Scripture as the final arbiter of what's true and what's not, what is from God and what's from not. If If someone says something that contradicts Scripture, they are not speaking a word that is from God. That's what the authority of Scripture holds. No matter what gift you profess to have, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's not from God. That is the authority of Scripture. There is no authority that is on par with Scripture. It stands alone as our chief authority in interpreting the will and word of God. So, when we consider prophecy, all biblical Christians agree on the uniqueness of the biblical prophets and apostles. There are things that we read in the Bible about the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles that don't apply to the ongoing gift of prophecy later in the New Testament once this uniqueness has been acknowledged, it is possible to see that there are other kinds of prophetic gifts in ministry about which the New Testament speaks. There are some who God gives a remarkable degree of insight into Scripture and its meaning, or into the application of God's Word to the world, or to a particular people at a particular time. There are those who would rather call these gifts something different from prophecy, and I understand that argument. Speaking for myself this is myself speaking, I do think it's biblically appropriate to consider these things and consider them to be prophetic giftings. With that said, I do agree with, there are some who prefer to use the word adjectivally, like prophetic or prophetically, rather than as a noun because that might confuse, because this is such a controversial question, it might confuse the nature of the uniqueness of the Bible. So rather than calling someone a prophet or something someone says a prophecy, we say just a prophetic gift or a prophetic word. Now, that's not a distinction made in the Bible, but it's a question of wisdom, and it appears to be a tension that the Bible is fine with holding. Here's the thing though, while we could discuss more about the nature of prophecy and prophetic gifting, I think it most important right now to keep this in the realm of what all biblical Christians can agree upon. If we understand prophecy to mean knowing and speaking God's mind and will, and we understand prophecy in the terms that I've just given, that seeking to speak God's mind and will today is not the same as disclosing truth that is on par with Scripture, then we can all together understand the thrust of what Paul is saying here when he says don't quench the Spirit and don't despise prophecies. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying God is speaking, so you should listen. This is what Paul is saying. God is speaking to and through his church, and you should listen to what the Spirit is speaking. And look at how he continues. Look at verse 20 and following. He says, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, there were evidently some who were questioning prophecy as a gift and prophetic voices in the church. And this could have been for any number of reasons, but they were tempted to shut out prophecy in the church. And Paul says, don't do this. You ought to listen if someone within your church says this is the will of God, don't dismiss it out of hand. We are to listen and to test it, to hold on to what is good, and to leave aside what is evil. In other words, you shouldn't just receive every prophecy that you hear. You should test it. Um, You should always weigh it. Neither should you despise it and just say, I'm not even going to listen. You should test it. To those who are skeptical of prophecy, Paul balances exhortation to listen with an exhortation to test. He doesn't tell us explicitly what it looks like to test things, but we can tell from, I mean, it's test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. He's in his rapid fire teaching, but we can look from elsewhere in the Bible to understand what it looks like to test prophecy. Test number one is the plain truth of scripture. If someone says something that doesn't align with scripture, then it's not from God. Test number two, the identity of Jesus as the son of God. First John 4 says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So if someone comes to you saying, I have a word from the Lord, and they don't confess Jesus as God, then that's not from the Lord. Test number three, the gospel of God's free and saving grace through Christ. Paul, at the beginning of the letter to Uh, his letter to the Galatians says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If anyone says a word that makes it sound like salvation is anything other than by God's free grace, then that's not a word from the Lord. Test number four of five, the known character of the speaker. So Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, look out for false prophets, look out for wolves. And he says this, a very simple test. You will know them by their fruits. Right? If their life is bearing good fruit, then they may be sharing God's word with you. If their life is not bearing good fruit, then it is not from God. As an aside, this is an argument against listening to random blogs on the internet with people saying this is God's will for you because right? you don't know them. It might be true. It might not be true. In Jesus' exhortation, it doesn't matter whether it is or isn't because you don't know them. It's an intimate, it's a communal, it's a family gift that is practiced, not like an across-the-country practice. Now, that's not an argument against listening to sermons from other pastors and staff. We're talking about people who say, this is God's will for you. Um, if you don't know them, you can't test their life. And then the final test is the degree to which it edifies or builds up the church. Authentic prophetic messages, authentic words from the Lord, encourage, they strengthen, they comfort. They may bring conviction, but they always lead to grace. All right, so if a, if a word brings anxiety or division or hatred, like bad, bad things, not edifying things, then it's not from the Lord. Test everything, hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. To make one more note on the difference between this kind of prophetic gift and that of the Old Testament prophets, uh, in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the story, prophets who were false prophets were to be stoned. False prophecy was a death penalty offense. Paul says nothing like this, right? He doesn't use the test as an opportunity to kick those who get God's will wrong out of the church or to stone them. He simply says, weigh what is said, hold fast to what is good, and set aside what is evil, what is not good. In other words, there's a sense in which this kind of prophetic gift is unique. It's not like the apostles and prophets. It's a different kind of gift. It's something that is practiced. There's a sense in which hearing and applying God's word in this way, seeking to discern God's will for a situation and speak about what you discerned to a people, takes practice, and you might get it wrong. But that's okay because you are surrounded by people who are testing everything in line with Scripture, in line with those other things that I mentioned. So long as we're not saying, thus says the Lord, or claiming to have some word from the Lord that's outside of Scripture or that contradicts Scripture— we don't have to have the fear of mishearing God's voice and being executed for it, right? Practically speaking, there ought to be the expectation that for those seeking to speak God's word to one another in the church, which is something that we do, whether you believe in the ongoing gift of prophecy or not, there ought to be the expectation that for those seeking to speak God's word into one another's lives, it's up to that person to receive it or not in the context of the church. Anyone seeking to speak truth to a brother or sister should offer this word with humility. Instead of God told me, you should say, I think God told me. Instead of God God is saying to us that we need, it should be, I could be wrong, but I think that God is telling us that we need this. There's a deep, a profound humility that allows the church to be the church, to hear what Paul is saying, to test everything, including the things that you say. And once tested, Paul says, hold fast to what is good. Once a brother or sister or leader has been tested and found, once the word from a brother or sister or leader has been tested and found genuine, then you should hold fast to it. This is one of the ways, Paul says, that God is speaking to you. Don't ignore these opportunities to enjoy the ministry of the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. This is strong language that Paul uses. To ignore the ministry of God's words through your brothers and sisters is like quenching a fire. It's like extinguishing the light that is shining in you by the Spirit, among us by the Spirit. We must, Paul says, let the Spirit shine and burn within us as his people. Fan the flame, Paul writes to Timothy, that is in you, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we looked at was Paul's exhortation not to neglect God's providence. Here, the second thing that we see is his exhortation not to neglect God's presence. We should expect him to speak to us through his written words and through those who've been gifted with gifts of teaching or discernment or even a prophetic gifting or simply a brother or sister filled with the spirit, giving a word of encouragement to another brother or sister. We should expect this and we should respond appropriately. We should test and we should hold fast if it's good. This is a key way that God moves in our midst. Never forget that God is with you, that he's actively ministering to you uh, he's ministering his word to and through his people and so lean into what the spirit may be saying at any time within the context of a community that will be able to help you test and hold fast to what is good and lay aside what is not. So don't forget God's providence. Don't forget God's presence. The third thing, which I think is perhaps the most important of all of them, which really underpins the first two, is this. Don't forget God's grace. Don't forget God's grace. In the general flow of this final section of the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul's touched on three main relationships, like I talked about, uh, the relationships with uh, their leaders, their relationships with one another, and then the relationships with God. And here in his conclusion, he touches on the only way it's possible to heed what Paul has told them by the gracious work of God. Verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul has given them much to do. He's given them a lot of kind of rapid fire. This is what you must do, Thessalonians. And now he reminds them, it is God himself who will sanctify you completely and keep you blameless. It's about God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. This is where the pressure lifts, because if you think about it, none of us will do any of these things perfectly, right? I mean, maybe just me. Rejoice always, pray without stopping, without giving up. Give thanks in every circumstance. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, listen to what God is saying all the time. In God's faithfulness, he will lead us when we fail to do these things. He will lead us back. He will call us back. He will chase us down. He'll do it through pastors. He'll do it through brothers and sisters. He'll do it by his spirit, through his word. It's about God's faithfulness. And this is why the ministry of the church is so critical. Don't undervalue, I think Paul is saying, don't undervalue what is going on at any given moment. There is more going on in the life of the church than the eye can see. We've got, we are a relatively small church here at Sojourn. There's 120 members in our church. God is working in each of our lives, and God is using all of those things for the sake of the body. As someone struggles, God uses this to build us all up. As someone learns, God uses this to build us all up. As someone uses a gift that they've been given by the Lord to serve the body or to serve their neighbors, God uses this to build the whole body up. There is no category in the Bible for a Christian life lived in isolation. You should not, in other words, be hearing these words as saying, go and figure out how to rejoice and then come back to church. Go figure out what it looks like to be truly grateful because we don't want your grumpiness around here. The ministry of Satan is the ministry of isolation. Why? Because Satan is a liar. He wants you to believe what is untrue, and so he will try his best to remove you from the community that it's devoted itself to the truth within which we have access to the truth by the Spirit. So Satan would love to isolate us one from another, to draw us away and keep us in things that are untrue. The ministry of Satan is a ministry of isolation, but the ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people together, of getting people together before we have these things figured out. In this letter, Paul has given them much to do and much to think about, but he wants them to understand what is most important, that is all by God's grace. Don't forget God's providence. Rejoice, give thanks, pray. Don't forget God's presence. God is not just over everything, but he's with you. He's ministering to you and he's leading you. And don't forget his grace. You will fail. You will encounter circumstances that make it hard for you to do these things. There will be things that are hard that you will struggle to rejoice in the midst of. You may be hurt by someone speaking a harsh word to you in the name of the Lord. But God can bring healing and nearness in the midst of all of this. And can redeem even those situations. There is grace upon grace. God will use every circumstance in your life ultimately for good. He will finish the work that he started It's interesting to note that this whole passage is probably best understood in the context of communal worship. Look at this, this is the last few verses that Paul says. He says, read this letter to all the brothers. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The prophesying here is probably public prophesying. All of these verbs that he talks about are plural. Some have taken this to be a summary of the worship gathering. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, make room for God to speak. If you're familiar with our liturgy, think about these things for a moment. What is the call to worship for? What are the songs that lift our voices and hearts to God in celebration for? Rejoice. Why do we thank God after the assurance of pardon, celebrate communion, and thank God for his provision? Say thanks be to God after we read scripture because Paul says, give thanks. Why do we pray at various points through the gathering? Because God says, God's word says, pray. Why do we read scripture, make space for it to be preached and seek to apply it in thoughtful ways? Paul says, have this letter read. Don't despise prophecies. Listen to what God is saying. Why do we pass the peace? Greet one another with the holy kiss. So, starting next week, we're going to begin. No, I'm kidding. We're not. Uh, greet one another with the holy kiss. That's a reference to a culturally appropriate physical sign of affection. The reason we pass the peace is because it takes more than an eyebrow raise to greet one another in Jesus' name. It takes an an intentional moment of contact, and I know for those of you who are new here, the passing of the peace is the most awkward part of our liturgy. I wish I were sorry. I am sorry, Um, but this is what God tells us to do, greet one another meaningfully. Why do we end with a benediction every week but to remind us that it is God himself who will sanctify us completely? Sojourn, this is what we do when we gather. Paul tells us to give ourselves to these things, and this is what our liturgy does. We need this gathering. We don't need just to be reminded to do these things. We need to actually practice these things together week after week. There is more happening than what meets the eye. This helps our lament in seasons of pain to be truly Christian lament when we are rejoicing in the midst of difficult circumstances. We shed tears of anguish and cry out in pain and then we're brought to our knees before the one who can heal that pain in prayer. And then after we rehearse these things together, we are being called back to what God, what is God's will for our lives, then we lean into what God is doing with us in the world. We go out into the world together to love God and love our neighbors, to build the kingdom of God. What does it look like? To be a healthy family together. What do healthy families do? We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks in every circumstance because this is the will of God for us, not because we feel like it, but because it's his will. We don't quench the spirit. We don't despise prophecies, but we test everything we hear. We hold fast to what is good and we abstain from every form of evil. And it is the God of peace himself who will sanctify you completely. He will finish the work that he has begun. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us and thank you for the letter of First Thessalonians. What a wonderfully encouraging letter. What a wonderfully practical letter. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe that you are good, that you would give us the hope to eagerly anticipate your return, that you would give us the love to demonstrate for one another, the love that you first showed us in Christ. And when we fail, Lord, would you, by your grace, as the God of peace, give us the peace that surpasses understanding and sanctify us completely. Keep our whole spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You are faithful and we thank you for it, Lord. Please do this. Please give us faith and hope and love in Jesus' name, amen.